Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, welcome back. How are you today? Doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, you only missed last week, but you kind of missed the week before because uh, your husband cut his hand in two, and you know, he had to get it all put yeah, back together. I wouldn't say in two, but we did have um, a mandolin slicing incident. <laughs> Watch out for those mandolin slicers. That's uh, that's what's going on. So I'm glad. I guess at least it, it happened like right in between our interview and recording our other segment. So we got to finish our interview with Tommy Adams and then I had to go. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just wondering if, if your your poor husband is just out there like with the bloody stump and he's just like waiting for us to finish our interview with Tommy and you know, then he comes in and is like, Jasmine, my hand has fallen off. I need your help now. So, I, you know, I don't know how that went, but whatever. It seems like he's doing okay yeah, now. It happened like right right before that yeah that's okay well i'm glad i'm glad andrew's doing okay uh but we're we're doing great too our guest this week is david kloiber david kloiber is a candidate for mayor in lexington he's challenging the incumbent uh linda gorton um and he is he's running hard you know he's got a lot of ideas fresh ideas i feel like interesting ideas that he talked about um he he talked about how he's kind of outside of the fraternity of people who've normally run for for uh, mayor of lexington he has a tough road to hoe i feel like linda gorton is a pretty popular mayor she's got a lot going for her but he's he's giving it a shot so i i definitely encourage you to listen to the interview especially if you're a lexington resident even if not he's an interesting guy to listen to um we're, we're going to try to to have mayor gorton on and before the election so uh definitely t- check back in with that but i did really enjoy our interview with david Kloiber. jasmine what'd you think of him yeah, I do think it was really interesting. I, It seems like he's running maybe a little bit more progressive campaign. Um, it's a nonpartisan race, but he seems to be running a little bit to the left of Linda Gorton, <laughs> um, would be my assumption. Um, you know, I think he's running in a really tough race. I think that's going to be a, an uphill climb for him. Um, but I'd be really interested to see, you know, what he does next if he doesn't win this time around yeah absolutely he, he still has a spot in the lexington uh fake urban county government council so you know he'll definitely be around on that level but yeah if he if he has different things in store uh for him as as he moves along um seems like seems like a person that we should keep our eyes on which we will do uh you know we will definitely do before the interview though we have two segments that we did not get to and they are first of all they are both about people who are running for statewide offices next year as republicans we've kind of been doing this as more and more republicans have gotten involved in the race or first we have russell coleman who jasmine's going to talk about he's running for attorney general and then second we have max wise who has already been named as kelly craft's lieutenant governor nominee so without any further ado jasmine talk to us about russell coleman all right so we mentioned that republican russell coleman announced his run for attorney general a while back but we haven't really talked much about him so we figured we would do that today um so coleman announced his run back in may actually just the day after daniel cameron announced his gubernatorial campaign Um, And he promised to crack down on violent crime and drug trafficking. When he announced he already had endorsements from Trump's former drug czar, um, former Kentucky Commerce Secretary Jim Host, and Anthony Piagentini, who is a Louisville Metro councilman. He said his goal is to stop the people who are poisoning our communities with 
deadly drugs and using technology to target our kids, parents, and grandparents. And that when people break the law, they deserve to be thrown in jail. So he's definitely running a very, um, you know, tough on crime type of campaign and, and, you know, has no qualms about that. Yeah. Um, Coleman graduated from UK law school in 2004 and he's a former FBI agent. He actually, um, I've, I found this that was in an op-ed that was written about him in the career journal that he, he left his job as an FBI agent after dealing with like a rare neurological condition that left him like unable to walk for some time and he had to go through um pretty intensive like rehab to overcome that um and he had to leave his job as an fbi agent when that happened and then he also worked as a senior advisor and legal counsel to mitch mcconnell after that um i i also thought that that was interesting because that that's the same route that daniel cameron went he was um, he worked in that like general counsel job to Mitch McConnell. And then he went to work for Frost Brown Todd, which is also what Daniel Cameron did. Um, his Frost Brown Todd bio says he ex- he's assisted with expungement and criminal justice reforms, like working on Senate Bill 120, which is a reentry, which is a reentry bill. He was also part of the Kentucky Smart on Crime Coalition at some point as well. Um, And so I'm not sure if this is what the work that the Frost bio is referring to when it talks about his criminal justice reform work. I'm not sure if that's referring to his work on the Smart on Crime Coalition. So the Smart on Crime Coalition has a lot of um, more conservative people that have worked on that. Conservatives who support criminal justice reforms it's, it's kind of like a bipartisan coalition and they support those reforms like largely because they're good for economic reasons as well. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like that, you know, progressives have obviously been pushing for, for criminal justice reform for a very, very long time. And I feel like the Kentucky smart on crime coalition was like led by conservatives to be like, well, this seems like a good idea, but we don't want to get to go, you know, like too far or, or yeah. whatever. And, and they kind of were like, this is what we can get done. Right. That that's kind of, you know, um, OJ Oleka was involved in it. Another guy, he's running for a statewide office too. I think he's running for like treasurer auditor something um and and then i think whitney westerfield was involved Rand paul was like around it at some point so it's like those those types of people who have like those stances on um on on criminal justice issues yeah daniel cameron was involved in that as well so he has a very similar background um to daniel cameron um you know before his attorney general run as well So after working for Mitch McConnell and Frost Brown Todd, he was appointed to the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Kentucky by Donald Trump in 2017. Um, So he does have more legal experience than Daniel Cameron does, certainly. Um, He has touted his Trump connection, um, but he did uh, denounce the January 6th attack on the Capitol, um, and he said that he hopes each perpetrator is brought to justice. So during his U.S. attorney tenure, he promised a more muscular, invisible response from federal law enforcement. And and I think he accomplished that. Um, His attorney general office definitely had a presence in Louisville as far as like responding to 
violent crime, drug crimes, gun possession crimes. Oftentimes that's something that's handled by state police. Um, but his federal office certainly started um, charging people with a lot of those types of offenses. He also published an op-ed during the 2020 protest saying his office would seek out people looting, burglarizing, and carjacking. And then, um, I believe that this was in 2020 as well, there was also this weird thing about challenge coins. He was posting challenge coins to off honor law enforcement every Friday. And one week he posted one from his, like, I guess like official office Twitter account with the Punisher on it. And the Punisher logo has kind of been adopted by a lot of like alt-right militia groups and white supremacy groups and police officers who support like extrajudicial types of justice, I guess. <laughs> um, Coleman took down the photo and said he didn't know about the logo's vile association with Nazis. Can, can we pause here for just one second? Um, what is a challenge coin? <laughs> um, I didn't know what they were either, but they're just like... They're just like coins you give people to be like, hey, good job, right? Like, you did a good thing. Here's a token, right? Yeah, I think. I, I think so. Yeah, and, and I, I've seen a few of these before, and they're kind of like some of them are colorful, um, and say stuff on them, and, and and I mean I think of them sometimes as like, and the military has like things that they like paint on the side of the plane, you know, when they like take off, and like they have like sayings or whatever, or like little like tokens, like little things, um, and these so these challenge coins have stuff like that on them. So I mean, I think it's conceivable that he's being truthful and being like not maliciously putting the Punisher on there. Somebody's like, "Hey, this seems like something cool to give to a police officer," and he's like, "Oh, okay." And then it turns out it was pretty bad. But the thing that's kind of funky is like it makes me think of like the military militarization of the police to like utilize the system like this, to like honor people um, in a job, which it makes them seem a little bit more like soldiers than like police officers. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's where challenge coins come from. They like came from, they were used in like the military and they're not restricted to the military, but I think that's where, like, the tradition comes from. We're not given, like, teachers challenge coins. You know, we're not given, like, the pharmacist challenge coin. It's like, you know, the police officers are getting them, and that's because we're kind of treating the police officers like police officers, or by like military people. Yeah. So, you know, that that's kind of his um, U.S. attorney tenure. After his resignation at the end of the Trump administration, he went back to Frost Brown Todd. He also serves on the board of directors of the Kentucky State Police Foundation. Um, and so just like from what I can see from his campaign so far, um, his campaign borrows from Trump a little bit. His slogan, his slogan on his website says, back the blue, protect families, make America safe again. Um, so it seems like he is catering to like the MAGA crowd using the make America blank again <laughs> slogan there. Um, he describes himself as a pro-life pro-family Republican 
and Trump's top cop and America first conservative. Um, and so I don't know. Originally, it really seemed like there could be a crowded field for the Republican primary for attorney general. When Daniel Cameron announced that he would run for governor, Michael Adams, the secretary of state, tweeted that he was considering a run for attorney general. But recently, he said that he plans to run for secretary of state again because he feels like the office needs him in the role. I tend to agree with that because I think we could get someone a lot worse. <laughs> we could get somebody a lot worse than Mike. And, and, and I mean, it wouldn't be too, su- it still wouldn't be surprising to me if like somebody tries to r- run in a primary against Michael Adams as like a, a hard yeah. right person. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's some, that I think that's a priority for some of these like Liberty Republicans and like stolen election type people to like get, get those people in the secretary of state offices. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's why he's like staying in that position as a, as a more moderate Republican. And I guess I am glad for that. Yeah. Um. I'll, I'll say like, I'm definitely going to vote for the Democrat in that race, but I will be cheering really, really hard for Michael Adams in the Republican <laughs> in the primary. primary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but, but now that he's not considering it, you know, that that's one person now. And then now, Russell Coleman has started adding a lot of other big names to his endorsement list, including Congressman Andy Barr has endorsed him, Congressman Brett Guthrie, um, Trey Grayson, and a lot of other state representatives, state senators, um, state level Commonwealth and county attorneys, sheriffs, police chiefs, judge executives. And so... He's racking up endorsements very early on, and so maybe it's kind of feeling like the field isn't going to be very crowded at all. Um, but but I don't know. Do you? Um, what do you think, Robert? Do you have anyone else in mind who might run as a Republican in this Attorney General race? You know, these down ballot races, even including the Attorney General, are often like people kind of come out of nowhere like daniel cameron kind of came out of nowhere to to get this spot like andy bashir this was the first office he ever ran for and of course like people were like oh you know a bashir the young bashir is like ready for prime time so you know we we, we don't know like if, if like ernie fletcher's you know nephew or something might pop up and like run for this or something like that um but but no i don't know anybody uh that i think would for sure be interested in this beyond what the people that you've already kind of mentioned but this kind of does make me think of like andy Bashir when he ran for governor when he got in kind of early you know and, and rocky atkins and, and adam edelin kind of waited until the the midterm was over and uh, rocky atkins like kind of tried to make that like a campaign issue like you know you got to support our uh, legislative candidates uh you know don't don't get in the race now and Andy Bashir got in early he was able to fundraise rack up endorsements uh and, and was able to you know win the primary um but you know not, it, it was pretty well contested but it was it was you, you know he went by a more comfortable margin than he won the general election by we'll, we'll we'll put it that way um but yeah i i think it's kind of interesting jasmine i want to hear from you so obviously as a republican running in a republican primary or at least a perceived republican primary you kind of have to stake out this spot where like trump republicans are going to vote for you and you have to say things like 
you know, making America safe again or like back the blue or whatever. And you have to say, like, I'm going to throw them all in jail. So, I mean, are you are you thinking based on all the research that you've done about him and, and you know, the, the stuff that you've learned about the things that he may actually believe? Do you think that's the real reflection of him? Or do you think like the smart on crime guy who, um, you know, may have maybe a little bit uh, more, you know, more deft in the way that he would, uh, you know, ap- approach prosecution? Do you think that's more like him? Which one do you think is is the person who would be the attorney general? He seems like an actual conservative attorney general to me. Like the like he'd be the conservative U.S. attorney who was prosecuting gun crimes and drug possession crimes that are usually prosecuted by state prosecutors. You know, like that's who he was as U.S. attorney, and so I I think he I don't I don't think he's just trying to cater to Trump Republicans. I think he's probably more like that. Um, he comes by it honestly. Yeah. It, well, you know, I don't know if he would normally say some of those like Trumpy things like back the blue, make America safe again, like Trump's top cop, those kind of things, you know, I don't know. But I, I do think he is pretty conservative ideologically. Mm-hmm. And I think as a candidate, he probably just caters to a lot of Republicans because he kind of has like the McConnell Republican background. And then he also seems pretty Trumpy too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and, and like, I don't really think you can run as a Republican attorney general candidate and not be tough on crime you know i don't think there is a lane right no there's not there's not a there's not a there's safe not a reform candidate lane yeah no here at all you know so i think he he probably like checks the boxes for a republican attorney general candidate i don't so i think if there's someone else running i don't you know maybe it would be an even further like fringe right liberty yeah. candidate or something um or just someone who really wants to do it, you right? Know? I don't know. Um, yeah, and that—that's that, kind of the thing. Like in, in the primaries for a lot of these, is like they're—they don't really run in lanes. They may be like the same person. It's just who can raise mm-hmm. the most money, get yeah. the most signs in the yards, and that kind of thing. Um, in in primaries for these state level offices, um, in the the off year election. So, you know, but he he seems like he's already. I mean, I, I feel like he's kind of already got it sewn up. Maybe it, 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 we'll never, we won't know. And you know, if there's a self funder out there, but he's got a lot of endorsements, and he seems like he's got a huge head start. I mean, he seems like somebody really to watch in the future too. It seems like, um, you know, he's obviously an attorney who's a you know county attorney. I know he was a U.S. attorney, um, and now he is um, you know going for the attorney general's job. But I mean, there's no real reason to think he he will stop there. I, I think you know, in four or eight years, um, we may be seeing him as a candidate for governor for sure so i think that that's certainly somebody that will probably be around kentucky politics for a while just like a lot of these other names we've been talking about um who are going to be running as republicans this year you agreed yeah i yeah yeah, i think so too um yeah yeah all right well that's russell coleman who's running for attorney general now let's talk a little bit about max wise so why are we talking about max wise the state senator um because kelly Kraft, the the candidate for kentucky governor did something she didn't have to do a couple weeks ago in that she named max wise as her running mate so 
Jasmine, in the past, you'll be familiar with this. The, the gubernatorial candidates had to name their lieutenant governor nominees at the same time that they declared their own candidacies. That used to be the way that it worked up until this very cycle. But now the legislator changed the rule, and so now you see Daniel Cameron running for, for governor. He will add a lieutenant governor if he wins the primary. Or Ryan Quarles, if he wins the primary, will add somebody. Um, Kelly Craft, though, has taken the extraordinary step of naming Max Wise as her running mate. So if, if Kelly Craft loses the nomination, you know, I think it's highly likely that she's going to be asked to be whoever else is lieutenant governor nominee. And that's just because candidates can self-fund their own campaigns with as much money that belongs to them as they want to. Um, so she would then be able to, you know, pack a very hefty fi- or financial punch uh, for the eventual Republican nominee. So that means she'll probably get asked. I don't know if she will say yes. We saw that on the Democratic side. Adam Edelin added Gil Holland um, as his uh, running mate, who is a wealthy person who's associated with the Brown family. And they did a lot of self-funding for that campaign in the 19 cycle. So anyways, on to Max Wise. Max Wise is a state senator from Campbellsville. He's the chair of the Senate Education Committee and has been front and center for most of the education fights over the past several sessions, of which there have been many. He'd been widely rumored to be Kelly Craft's running mate, even teasing on social media that he had a big announcement coming, which turned out to be like an announcement for like a parade in his hometown. And people were like, oh, is this when they're going to announce that he's Kelly Craft's running mate? So he's kind of playing around on social media there. So when, when Kelly Craft did eventually name Senator Wise as running mate, she said that he was, quote, a person who inspires respect, who has already shown commitment to Kentucky and someone in whom we can place full trust, unquote. That, that means literally nothing. <laughs> Those words do not, like, what does that mean? Um, and I just think that that is how Kelly Craft operates. She cannot avoid speaking in platitudes. I don't know if she would be like, he's a great leader in education because that would be too close to talking about an issue. I feel like that that's kind of how Kelly Craft's campaign has gone so far. So Max Wise is from Campbellsville, and he stayed home for school. You know, Campbellsville University is a, a, a university down there in Campbellsville that's associ- associated or had been associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't think it is anymore. And anyways, he started teaching political science there at Campbellsville University shortly after graduating. And then after working there for a while, he received his master's degree from the University of Kentucky and a graduate certificate from the Bush School at Texas A&M, and that was focused in homeland security. Texas A&M, one of the best policy schools in the whole country. It's a big deal to even get in there, uh, but they are very security-focused. That is what you do. You do homeland security-type stuff down there at Texas A&M. Um, yeah, um, UK, the Martin School, we would always like talk about how we were slightly high, more highly rated than Texas A&M, even though they got all the Bush money. I think maybe, I don't know what the recent rankings are, but um, that was what we used to say at the Martin School. Anyways, after completing his education, he went to work for the FBI, just like Russell Coleman. So, you know, there you go. We have a lot of FBI guys running around for uh, public office, a statewide office here in Kentucky. Um, Max Wise worked as an intelligence analyst. That's something very common for people who get their Homeland Security certificates at the Bush School at Texas A&M to do. And uh, eventually uh, he left that job where he was in uh, Washington, D.C., I believe, and he started doing the same job in the Louisville field office. So um, that was when he worked for the FBI. And then in 2007, he went back to Campbellsville where he resumed teaching political science. So kind of an interesting um, jaunt into law enforcement and then back to teaching political science. 
Max Wise was then elected seven years after moving back to Campbellsville. Uh, he was elected to the state Senate in 2014. He benefited from the, the last round of redistricting, uh, which slightly uh, significantly altered the 16th Senate district where he's he's related. So um, 2014, they did not do new maps in 2012. They actually got thrown out and had to be redrawn. That may happen this time. We have yet to see. Uh, but, but that's why they didn't run on new maps until 2014 in Kentucky. So in for a very long time, so from like 1987 to 2012, the 16th district was represented by David Williams. That is uh, a huge name in Kentucky politics. He was um, he he struggled mightily as the face of the Republican Party in Kentucky during a time when the GOP was extremely successful in federal races. You know they swept a lot of they they earned the first second at, at a time the third even in Louisville uh, the fourth. And uh, the, at, at different times, the fifth and the sixth as well. Um, they, they basically had all of Congress at one point or another, both federal uh, senators. And, um, you know, we carried uh, they carried the, for the presidency for George W. Bush twice. And then, of course, for Mitt Romney twice. But on the state level, they really struggled. Uh, you know, William successfully led the Senate takeover in 2000. That was a wild story. Um, the Democrats had a majority and David Williams convinced a Democratic senator to flip. And that is actually what would cause the Senate it to go to Republicans in 2000. But not until four years after Williams left did the House actually fall to Republicans. So that's, yeah, that, I, so all that to say that um, a very, very important person held Max Wise's seat for a very long time before he got there. Williams ran for governor in 2011 and was absolutely crushed by Steve Bashir. Jasmine, I don't know if you were paying close attention back in 2011, but that was when Richie Farmer ran on the ticket with David Williams, um, and Steve Bashir carried like more than 100 counties, I think. Um, a year after David Williams lost, he accepted Governor Bashir's nomination to be a circuit court judge, and, and that left that seat open. After Williams left that seat, a woman named Sarah Beth Gregory won a special election to the seat and became like a big rising star in the legislature. Uh, she uh, received like plum appointments to the budget and government contract review committees where she made a bunch of news and, you know, was was able to be out front talking about important issues as a freshman senator who'd only won a special election. But then they redistricted and they changed uh, that 16th district to include Taylor County. That's where Campbellsville is. Campbellsville's the seat there. And in 2014, Max Wise decided to run in a primary against her and he won with 54 percent in the Republican primary. Um Interestingly, the only other person to flip a seat in a primary that year was Chris Harris, who defeated Keith Hall in the extremely Democratic seat in Pike and Martin counties where no Republican even challenged. Um, just kind of funny to think about now. Uh, very, very different thing, different time there in 2014. So Sarah Beth Gregory went on to work in Mike Harmon's office and is now a candidate for a circuit court judge in Western Kentucky. So anyways, that's the history of the 16th seat, the Campbellsville seat, where Max Wise has been seated for since 2014. And as a member of the legislature, Max Wise rose in the ranks, especially after the Republicans took full control of both chambers. In 2017, he became the chair of the Senate Enrollment Committee, which is not as big a deal, but it is a chairmanship, and it is like, a you know, you, you are part of leadership at that point. And then in 2019, he became the chair of the Senate Education Committee, one of the most important seats in the entire legislature. 
Senator Wise has been a very, very solid Republican. He sponsored a lot of legislation to uh, restrict abortion rights. He sponsored conservative re- legislation, including this year against uh, like CRT. He was a major proponent for that um, that bill uh, that that made its way through the legislature this year. He's been willing to break ranks a little bit. He voted against the GOP's tax plan in 2018. Jasmine, uh, you you remember that we were talking about it when it was happening, Um, but that was kind of passed at the last second. Um, It caused all kinds of confusion when it was made law over Governor Bevin's veto. So the Republicans like came out with this budget at the last second. They were like, here's this new thing that we're going to do to like increase a few taxes and make the, um, you know, increase sales taxes for pet groomers and stuff like that. Uh, And, and, they passed it without really any debate whatsoever. Governor Bevin was even like, this is nuts. You can't just do this at the last second. And Matt Bevin and uh, uh, even Matt Bevin, it was too much for him. He vetoed it, but then it was passed over his his veto. Max Wise, though, did not vote for uh, uh, you did not vote, vote for vote for it after Matt Bevin vetoed it. Uh, he's also sponsored the bill to allow districts extra days of remote a remote time during the COVID pandemic. That was like kind of a deal that was struck. You know what? When the Republicans like reached out to school districts and were like, "What do you need?" and they were like, "We need extra time to do remote learning because there are laws around how much time we can actually use, and if there are outbreaks of the school, we, we will be really hamstrung." And so Max Wise shepherded that bill through the legislature um, at the behest of of uh, you know edu- the education system. However, I mean, it, it goes without saying he's one of the staunchest Republicans in the legislature and helps to set the Republican agenda, especially as it relates to education. So 2022's SB138 was a major piece of legislation which earned Max Wise a lot of criticism from Democrats and praise from Republicans. Um, this is a bill that forces teachers to teach 24 different pieces of civic history, including a conservative speech by Ronald Reagan. Uh, I, I think I I nicknamed this bill Ronald Reagan Required, but nobody really picked that up. I don't think it's that funny of a joke, unfortunately. Um, and all the, Anyways, the bill also included a lot of language borrowed from other anti-CRT legislation across the nation so sb138 was out there he was really pushing it he was really supporting it and it was eventually actually subsumed into senate bill one another bad piece of legislation on which uh senator wise was a sponsor but because of the process of moving sb138 into sb1 was actually done pretty sloppily it was discovered by just a policy analyst who reads a lot of bills that teachers who accidentally violated Senator Max's Senator Max Wise's rules about which uh, you know documents they needed to teach were actually open to criminal prosecution, which was not in SB 138, but because it was put into SB 1, that was part of it. Republicans had enacted a very quick fix after progressive policy analysts pointed out that problem. Um, you re- you remember this when it was happening, right, Jasmine? It's kind of wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways, that's Max Wise in the legislature over the past few years. He's definitely risen up the ranks um, since joining in 2014. Um, he, you know, been the chair of two different committees. Definitely a very, very important person in the state legislature. I think Kelly Craft is probably tapping Max Wise because he might be seen by some as a serious mind who has been involved in K- Kentucky government for a long time. But I'm not sure that, like, He's a name that many people outside yeah. of like South Central Kentucky or like us that pay very close attention to the legislature really know. And he certainly doesn't cut the figure of someone who seems like that inspiring. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, though. Like, it's tough for me to judge what Republicans are going to find inspiring. So, Jasmine, what do you think? Do you think that this is a, a 
a good move, a bad move, or an enigmatic move by Kelly Craft putting Max Wise on the ballot with her all the way uh, or as early as September? Yeah, what I was going to say was that my guess for why she did it is that is maybe because of his work in education and supporting some of this like anti CRT legislation, because that is something that Republicans like these like parents rights and school choice things. That's something that Republicans have like really grabbed onto lately. And so maybe she is hoping that will capture voters for her. But I don't think that people associate him with that movement outside of people who really follow the legislature. Yeah. And so I really worry about the name recognition here. I, you know, I, I think like, you know, grabbing, you know, South central Kentucky, an area that, I mean, she's from not far from there though, because she, her roots are, you know, in Barron County. So, but those are her roots. I don't know. Those are her roots. I don't know yeah, if she's like I mean she has maybe she's, she's a Lexington person, right? She's yeah, a, she's she's a Lexington person. And so I expect her to have a base there and then maybe some base in western Kentucky where she's from. And so I would maybe expect her to want someone from like Louisville northern kentucky or eastern kentucky so south central south central kentucky is really important in the republican primary because it is like if you look at a map of like the old old uh gubernatorial elections when democrats used to really dominate that's the area that always voted republican and so that's a good point that that's like the area where republicans have always been like the somerset corbin um, that kind of axis, Campbellsville is right in the middle of there. Yeah, and, and so maybe maybe his name there is more important than I realize. Um, but I just wasn't sure if he had the name recognition. Yeah. Well, these days, like, you know, Southeast Kentucky is not, or that part, South Central Kentucky is not really the only part that is, I mean, Republicans have really grown their registration as they (laughs) love to talk about. Yeah, yeah, they're everywhere now. Like, they're everywhere in the whole state now. So uh, it is kind of interesting, like, what the strategy is, and it's tough for me to even put my finger on it. Like, she didn't have to make this move. But I guess if she was, like, sure that he was the dude who was going to do it, maybe he's, like, a supporter. Maybe they have actually some sort of personal connection i don't really know she seems incredibly vapid i mean i mean maybe i'm just saying that because like she's a republican who has a bunch of money and i'm afraid of her or whatever but like she just see she just really to me seems like very vapid as a candidate but maybe she really did make some sort of of uh you know connection with him and knew that he was the guy like she's like i'm not gonna put daniel cameron on the ticket i'm not gonna put ryan quarles on the ticket i like this guy i'm gonna have him be on that so maybe it, it may be just, I mean, it may be, like, for his, like, intelligence and knowledge of policy and, and things like that. And and so that could definitely be a reason. I think it seems like a net neutral to me. Like, it, it doesn't seem like a wow running mate, but it does seem like a positive, like, for him, I think, because... Yeah. I think he considered running for governor 
But I don't think he would have done well in the primary. I Definitely don't, not. I don't think he had the name recognition. And I think that some of his, like, if he carved out a lane in, like, this education, around this education issue, I think a lot of those people probably vote for, like, Savannah Maddox. Yeah. Maybe, you yeah. Know? So I, I think he would have gotten crushed if he'd ran for governor. And so I think it's good for him. Um, but I, I don't. You know, I don't know, um, you know, how much it's going to benefit her, but yeah, it's for him. <laughs> it's, it's a very mysterious move. I don't understand why she made it. It's enigmatic. Um, I don't really have a good explanation for it, but I agree with you totally. It's a great move for him. I think he would have, he definitely didn't have a lane in the gubernatorial race, especially as the way it shaped up with literally everybody who thought about it, who had, you know, big time ambition for it ran. I think he, he was either looking at this staying in the Senate or running for like auditor or treasurer, or one of those lower level uh, state elected offices. And, you know, honestly, Lieutenant governor is probably, probably both the highest profile of those and also the one where you can kind of carve out um, your own lane more than anything else. People know the Lieutenant governor much more, I think than they know the, uh, the treasurer. So um, yeah, that's uh, that's that. All right. Anything else about Max wise or about uh, Russell Coleman, Jasmine? Nope. Uh, I think we've covered them. I do too. All right. Well, let's get to our interview with David Kloiber. David Kloiber is a candidate for the mayor of Lexington. He currently serves in the Lexington Fayette Urban County government as the sixth district council person, a position to which he was elected in an uncontested race in 2020. He also leads the Kloiber Foundation, which seeks to provide students and educators with the technology necessary to enhance learning experiences. He was born and raised in Lexington. Um, so David Kloiber, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. No, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, th- this is a, a seat that's really important to both of us uh, as former residents of Lexington and people who are paying very closely to attention about what's going on over there. So we're very glad to have you. So um, one of the things that we talk about on our show a lot is how the, f- the past four years have been really, really tough on leaders of city government, really in Kentucky, but across the whole country. And, and mayors are really less popular now than any time in the past. You know, they have... I think some of the toughest tasks in all of the public sphere to solve, they're really close to the people, and a lot of the problems that people face every day are things that mayors often have to solve, uh, and yet often uh, they have the least leeway in ways that they actually have to fix problems. So given that, why do you want to be the mayor of Lexington? Well, uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the first thing on my mind. I wasn't, I wasn't planning for this for, for a long time. But it really comes down to trying to solve problems and make the city a little bit better. I, I moved my kids back here. Um, I left the city for about seven years. I went to Florida, got married, had a few kids. And I moved them back here because I had such a great experience growing up in Lexington. Um, but uh, you know, after several years of working here with my nonprofit, I realized we needed to do a little bit more. So at this point, I'm jumping in to jump into those waters, help solve those problems from the uh, the top down. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, that that's that's a great experience. And, and moving back to your hometown and kind of getting reacquainted and figuring out what you want to do is, is awesome. Great, great. Glad to hear that. So, um, you know, we've been paying attention to Lexington politics for a long time. And one of the things that we've noticed is that it's a city where like paying dues has been kind of historically important. You know, Linda Gordon, the incumbent mayor, Jim Gray, the mayor before her. 
or before yeah before her uh teresa isaac who was the mayor a couple times before that and then pam miller who was before that they were all the vice mayor before they became the mayor jim newberry who was in the middle there after teresa isaac and and before jim gray uh, he was a really well-known political figure in lexington having run for congress and a couple of other federal races you know you are taking on you made the choice to take on an incumbent mayor um who by all accounts based on you know kind of what we we've been able to see uh see isn't isn't unpopular so why did you decide you know after one year of public service after moving back that that you had enough experience and that you were the right person to be the mayor of lexington fayette county it's interesting you uh you know you start that with that paying dues thing uh one of the things i found you know jumping into this public service realm is there's there's definitely that fraternity that that good old club to be a part of that um that I've not necessarily uh, been a part of in my life here, um, which I think is a good thing um, because while many of those mayors that you mentioned did some amazing things for Lexington, it has basically been the same kind of group of influences really shaping Lexington for the last 25 to 30 years. And we can see that with our budget structure. We can see that with just kind of how how the city has, has grown and the forces that are kind of pushing people away. Um, it's all kind of tied into that. So when you ask me, why did I jump into this after just one year on council? I can say I didn't intend to, you know, but when you get into a situation, you start seeing where the problems lie and where the inaction is coming from. You know, you can either sit there and bang your head against the wall, trying to get an immovable object to do something different, or you can actually step up and say, you know what, just let's be the change. Let's actually, start moving us forward. Uh, we're in a different, really a different environment since the pandemic. I think we all know our lives have changed a whole lot. So um, I don't think we should be doing the same thing we've always done. I don't think that we should be catering to just the same group of people who have continually you know, plotted out the destiny for the city. So all that together is to say, I, I'm ready. I've got, uh, I got a lot of experience helping businesses get through this uh, pandemic. I've got a lot of experience collaborations with my nonprofit. So I'm just I'm ready to address these issues and, and get things moving forward. Well, we'll talk about some of these issues. You've kind of centered around housing and gentrification, as well as education and safety as issues that you care about. Um, if you were elected mayor, how will the city's approach to these issues um, be different than they are right now or be different than they are in the past? Um, well, that, that's that's pretty that's a lot of questions. So we'll we'll we'll. You guys feel free to jump in if you have any questions on specifics, but I'll, I'll start breaking it down. Um, safety is an issue that comes up a lot, and it's been a big concern in Lexington with the uh, the rise in violence that we've seen. I think in the latest um, aggregate I saw, we had something like a 37% increase in violent crime from last year or homicides, which is obviously not a statistic we want to be a part of. Um, and I think that it, it's going to take a new approach. Uh, we've We've had pieces of kind of really good community policing in the past, and there's a program that I've been heavily advocating for with community leaders called GVI, that's the Group Violence Intervention. And this is a program which really tries to take those principles of community policing, um, getting those wraparound services, getting the community involved out there to try and address it. So that's one thing. And I know that the uh, the current administration, as many times as I've brought it to them, they have been not interested in it. So that's, that's one different thing. Um, housing. Uh, you guys, you both said that you no longer uh, live there in Lexington. I don't know if you were pushed out because the uh, price of housing got too high, but I do know that over half the people in our city 
who work here cannot live here for, for different reasons. And that's not a trend that we can see moving forward as sustainable. So, uh, so I put out a bunch of initiatives on how to address that kind of make our housing more affordable, make sure there's more affordable housing at every price point. Um, long and the short, it's going to take intentionality. We need to build more homes. We need to incentivize developers to build more homes. And we need to make sure we have dedicated funding that's going to be able to allow us to subsidize that. Um, oof. What were the other things we put on there? Education. That was another, that's another really, really big one for me. Um, you know, in a different lifetime, I was going to be a high school science teacher. Uh, that didn't that didn't pan out. Instead, I went a different direction. Um, and now I'm here with you guys. But uh, we need to actually have a robust relationship with our school system. I know that currently there's not a whole lot of collaboration. There's some. We have some things that happen. But it could be so much more, especially considering the fact that the schools have 50% more budget than the entire city does because they get their uh, there's right off the top on that, that property, that property tax. So um, all of this is to say we have a, a tapestry of issues and, and, a, and a wide range of things that are all interconnected, crime, housing, jobs, education, they're all connected. You have to address them all together as one thing. And I think that we just need to move forward some more modern policies in a lot of those areas. Yeah. Neither Robert and I were, were driven out by housing. We both moved to Louisville after our um, graduate program. So that's what brought us here. But um, I think we we see some of the same housing issues here in Louisville, too. Um, but another similarity. So some of your policies seem to be, you know, fairly progressive and maybe enough to run afoul of the state government. And here where we live now in Louisville. Um, we have seen several attempts by the state ledger to override decisions that are made by the city here. Um, how would you work with the state legislature to ensure that Lexington is kind of able to continue to set its own course? Wow. It's almost like you guys did your research and keyed this one up um, because most recently I've been at the state um, lobbying for more local control specifically uh, because of utilities in our uh, in our city. And I know you guys might not be faced with it as much yet, but KU has a new policy they're going through and doing complete clear cutting underneath transmission lines. So a lot of our residents were saying, well, why can't we have more input in this? Why is this just a company in Pennsylvania or otherwise that gets to decide what happens to all of our trees? Um, the long and the short is the city didn't have much control and the uh, PSC, which was the governing body at the state, didn't have much to do. So I've actually joined with um, a group of individuals in the community. We've gone to the state. We've lobbied on this. We actually had a presentation in the interim at the uh, joint committee meeting. So we've been making progress on it. But all that's to say, not only is lobbying at the state something that you should expect of your mayor and of your representatives, it's something that I'm already currently doing and will continue to do in whatever capacity I'm in. So I think that that's pretty clear. No matter what it is you want to get done, we're all people and at all levels of government, you you have a voice. One last question here. So, you know, in nearly every city in America, there has been tension um, between ensuring public safety and avoiding over-policing of minorities and other marginalized communities. And I think this is one issue, at least from my outside view in Louisville, 
um, where I have seen Linda Gorton um, receive criticism from the community during um, Breonna Taylor protests and, and things like that. And so what is your vision for public safety that holds those concerns at the same time? Yeah, the, really, it's about getting the community involved. Um, I know I mentioned GVI, and I'm not going to go into all the details of, of it. It's a, it's a it's a pretty well-tested and proven program. But the, the core message of it is the people in your community need to feel like they are connected and empowered to get change, to make change happen, right? They know what's going on in their communities. They're the ones who need to have that input. And if you're going to start building trust, you have to do so at that level. So for me, bringing in GVI, one of the big components that I'll, I'll mention real quick is the steering committee. Um, the steering committee is something that's made up of attorneys, it's made up of judges, it's made up of legislators, police, and community leaders. These are the people who oversee the direction of the GVI program. And it's important that you make sure that the community that is being you know, most likely to be over-policed is highly represented so that their voice is heard. I know currently in Lexington, the mayor has pushed out even more programs since uh, since all of the protests. There's a, a license plate reader camera, license plate camera um, program called Flock that I don't know if you guys have experienced in Louisville. Um, I'm I'm pushing against it pretty hard here, but basically they just they are being placed in areas to over police minorities. Um, the mayor continues to talk about how many stolen cars we found and not at all about the impact it's having on people who feel like they don't deserve to be monitored 24 seven. Um, I know it's an issue. It's also a lot of money for a program that doesn't prevent anything. So um, long and the short of it is make true efforts to get the community involved, give them that oversight and that ability to work with our public safety officers and really just re-envision what public safety is because it's got to be more than just the police and the police fund. It's got to be all the wraparound services and everything else, including housing, mental health, et cetera. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have spot shotter, but that sounds uh, the way that you're describing the license plate reader makes me think of that. So, um, you know, this this is a bit this is a big question in my mind uh, that I think about quite a bit. So, the city of Lexington and the U- University of Kentucky deeply connected relationship, 150 years plus of the university flagship university for the state of Kentucky that brings tens of thousands of students, many of whom are from all throughout the state and the country, to Lexington, Kentucky every year to to get a higher education. Um, there's a lot of synergies between the city government and the university that exist that that can create like beautiful and amazing things um but in the past the relationship between the university and the city has been very contentious uh and that goes up and down and changes all the time and and really the thing that changes the most is the leadership of those two institutions the city and the university so i don't think uh president capaluto is going anywhere anytime soon i mean i don't know he could i when we were when jasmine and i were at, at uk dr todd was there and he just kind of left abruptly uh, that could happen i suppose but but given you know your expectations for what what the university will have and how we'll be led, how will you fit into that? And what's your vision for how the city and the university can coexist and help each other be the best things that they possibly can be? You know, one of the most promising things uh, four years ago uh, when the mayor was elected, uh, her and Capaluto put out a joint um, op-ed about how they wanted to work together going forward. Now, obviously, many people's plans got derailed by the pandemic uh, and other issues but we haven't really seen 
the kind of things that were outlined in that op-ed, you know, the, the kind of collaborations really come to fruition. You know, we all understand that UK takes up a lot of the land. It's a lot, it's a lot of space in our city. It brings a lot of the, uh, you know, the jobs, the workers. We have a lot of people graduating that could be uh, part of our workforce. And we also know that we're not always keeping all of those people and that they're going to Louisville and, uh, and other places in order to do amazing podcasts. I mean, we, we would love to have you guys in, in Lexington, but, you know, obviously we didn't run you off with uh, houses. I hope it wasn't with anything else. So um, what, what I'll say is this. You have to be intentional about any type of collaboration you have. And UK, I know, wants to work with the city. They want to work with the Fayette County Public Schools. They want to work with BCTC. I see it every day. Several of the individuals that I talk to, including those like Capaluto and um, the, the former the former interim sixth district council member who sat in my seat for a few months, uh, Lisa Higgins Horde, who works over there with, uh, with relations is it's just, it's so important that you have people willing to talk and, and, and plan, right? Because it's not going to happen without that. So um, I, I was vague about a lot of things. How about I say a specific thing? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could go the way of maybe uh, other places we've seen where transit public transit the burden of that could be shared between these entities and we could have an even more inclusive uh, transit system going between the university and places within the city, right? That's something concrete we could talk about. It's going to take resources on both parts, but it's just an idea. And there's dozens of those that can happen every day, but you have to be intentional about building those relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really tough. It's tough for everybody. It's tough for every mayor to deal with. Uh, yeah, but those are, that's a good idea. Lextran. Yeah. Let, let's get yeah. Lextran going well. Um, okay. So the city of Lexington, just like many other cities was the beneficiary of a lot of ARPA money, American rescue plan act funding. I think Lexington got about a 120 million or maybe even a little bit more than that. A lot of that funding's already been allocated, but you know, the next mayor is going to be in charge of making sure it gets to the right places. And you know, there's a little bit of, of flexibility in terms of, uh, how that funding will be spent and, and you know the next mayor is going to have a big part in that likely so what's your vision for you know that ARPA funding and, and you know how much of a stamp do you feel like you would be able to put on it if you're elected mayor and what's your vision for how that money can be spent to improve Lexington so I was very involved in all the ARPA conversations obviously being on council and one of the concerns that I had was this money needed to be intentionally used to try to address the concerns that grew out of the pandemic, right? That was, you know, revitalizing the tourism industry and the services industry. That was, you know, the issues that became laid bare about our housing, um, these kind of things that were very, very apparent when we had to have, you know, a stay on evictions for so long. Uh, that's what these, these dollars were supposed to be spent for. And for a lot of the part, we did, we did that. We put in place a lot of money for affordable housing. We did a lot for these, these programs going forward. But there were also a lot of capital projects that were invested in dealing with parks and infrastructure. Um, being realistic about it, those costs are going to increase, right? We all know that the construction costs, infrastructure costs, they're going up. And so we have to be mindful of that before we start allocating more of this ARPA money into new, interesting, or more beneficial projects. We got to make sure we complete the ones we already committed to. So the very first thing I would do is say, um, I would work very hard at making sure that these ARPA projects we've committed to, which will be good for the city, do not overrun and become a tax burden more so than the money we were given. And I think that's probably the first and biggest priority for that. Um, 
obviously it's 120 million dollars and if you go through all the programming we put out there we could talk for a long time but i think that uh the next mayor coming in whether it's me or anyone else is going to have to make sure that this money does not start going into the general fund because we already have issues with that going forward and we need to make sure it's kind of self-contained that we got this one-time funding and it goes towards one-time funding sources. Well, thank you for being here with us today and sharing your campaign with us. Um, but before we let you go, how can people get involved in your campaign? Oh, that's nice. You want to, you want to help me out with my campaign? I won't, I won't hold you to it. Um, if you want to get involved in my campaign, uh, you can always go to my website at davidplover.com. Uh, we have a contact page there. We're on Facebook. Uh, you can go to the David Clover for Mayor, Instagram, all, all the social medias. You can find me pretty quick, quickly and easily. Um, but the biggest thing we need is just people to talk. You know, I tell people this. What we're really up against is just stagnation, right? If we're not moving forward, we're moving backwards. And so I'm not here necessarily running against the current incumbent. I'm running against kind of the status quo. We need to do more. We need to go forward. And yes, as you pointed out earlier, Robert, my name recognition is not as high because I haven't been a part of these groups for a long time. So if you want to help, please reach out, talk to your friends, let people know there's another option and that we really can do a lot more to make our city a much better place than it is right now. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. No, thank you guys. It was a great time. Jasmine, how can people find us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter um, where we share some of our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.